You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Hey, hey, good morning. Uh, so glad to have you here this morning. My name is Brian. I am the lead pastor here at uh, Grace City, and so uh, it's great to have you uh, here. That intro music, it always just makes me feel, it makes me feel like I should have a stronger intro than I do. You know what I mean? Like it should be like a, a hipper, but that's all I got. All right, so, um, so we're in a series uh, entitled Colossians, and so uh, we brand new series. So we started it last week essentially looking at uh, the book of uh, Colossians. And so if you don't know much about the book of Colossians, it was written by a guy named Paul. Paul was an early uh, church leader, former persecutor of the church, who then becomes uh, um, uh, a guy who honestly writes the majority of the, the New Testament letters that you see. So if you turn uh, your Bible all the way to uh, the Old Testament or to the New Testament, the majority of the letters that you're going to see are written by uh, a guy named Paul. And what we know uh, about most of the letters that are written to the church is uh, typically there were things happening going on in the churches and Paul is seeking to uh, address the issues that are happening. And so the uh, churches in the, the beginning uh, of the way of Jesus are similar to churches now. They're full of um, conflict and difficulty and people that are coming from all kinds of different places, uh, which creates chaos. Uh, and so Paul is writing these letters uh, to kind of help these, these followers think through um, these kind of various issues that they're approaching. And so last week, we just simply looked at, um, Paul was saying, hey, I've heard this about you to the church at Colossae. He didn't know them personally. He knew their leaders. He knew the people that planted the church. Last week, we just looked at, hey, here's why I'm thankful. This is what I'm hearing about your church. This is what I'm hearing about what the gospel is doing in your community. And I just want to communicate and say, uh, and say thanks and say thank you that I'm seeing that happen and begin to, uh, the gospel is beginning to produce fruit, is beginning to do things. So you can go back and listen to that um, uh, if you, you want to hear it. But uh, here's what you're going to see as we kind of talk through this letter. Um, a lot of the letter is, is really about Christian maturity, which in some ways has kind of been a theme of what a lot of our church has been working through over the last few months together. This idea that it really is still answering the question, um, not so much uh, how do I live and what do I do, but who am I becoming? It kind of still fits into that narrative of what type of person am I becoming by the way that I live, by what I believe. And so a lot of Colossians is really dealing with Christian maturity. A lot of what we're going to see over the next uh, few weeks together is talking about that. But here's what Paul's going to do on the front end. And this is what we're going to look at. So we're going to primarily be, if you have your Bible, we're primarily going to be in 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So you can take a moment if you want to turn there or you can get there on your phone or, or whatever, you, you know, whatever way that you, whatever accent, your manuscript, whatever. All right, so um, here's what is he going to do. So before he gets into this whole Christian maturity thing, he's going to almost, what the, to the best of our understanding, is he's going to break out into a Christian hymn. So before he gets into like, how are you living? What are you believing? And what are you thinking about? He's going to turn the, the spotlight of the intro of his letter onto the person of Jesus. And, and it's almost as if he's breaking out in song before he gets to all of these other things. Now, 
what's, what's really fascinating in, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is that if you read this, and Danny just read some of it for us, um, if you read this, it's this really kind of theologically robust, complex teaching. Like this is a, a deep kind of hymn, right? This is not... Um, I'm gonna tread carefully here. Uh, it, it's not like a lot of like worship songs we sing now. It, it's this very kind of theologically robust, some, some really kind of deep stuff that's inside of this kind of ancient hymn that, that Paul's gonna give us. And I think it's important for us to think about as we think about and consider our kind of cultural moment, uh, I don't think the question is as a, as a church and as followers of Jesus, I don't think the question so much should be like, hey, are we, um, are we relevant enough? Or do we have the right look? Is our music like catchy enough and, 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 and singable enough? I don't even know if that's a term, but singable enough. Like, uh, are we kind of in, are we making sure that we're like in the kind of cultural stream? Like, I'm not saying those things are bad. It's not bad to be culturally relevant. It's not bad to, um, uh, to, to kind of have great music. Like, these are all things that, that we want to do. But, but I think in a lot of ways, in our kind of cultural moment, especially in the city that we live in, I, I think the question that we have to think a lot about is, um, is do I understand why I believe what I believe? Like, I think in our moment, we have an opportunity to, to really think about and say, hey, we want to be a, a church and a people who have a, a, a robust theological understanding of our faith. Not a simply a surface level, kind of encouragement level base, not like a one-liner where everything rhymes kind of base understanding of our faith but a theologically robust understanding of what we believe. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because I'm looking at 15 through 20, at this ancient hymn for the early church, and it's just that. It's like thick. You gotta chew on it for a bit. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. Uh, we're gonna go through, uh, we're just gonna go through this, this hymn line by line. And we're gonna look at the, the centrality of Jesus in this particular uh, hymn. And so it may feel... Um, I don't know, it may feel a little choppy for you, it may feel, but, but let's just kind of sit in inside of it and, and let's kind of focus in and think, okay, what can I um, learn about? What can I take away um, about Jesus in this particular hymn? And so let me, let me pray for us and then we'll dive in, um, we'll dive into our text. God, we, um, we wanna honor you this morning and we want to know you more deeply we want to know you more intimately. Uh, we want to be people who live more in line with the way of Jesus, the way that he has taught us to live, the way that he lived, the way that he mimicked for us um, in the scriptures and in his life. And so would you just help us this morning as your church, as people just trying to be faithful, uh, help us as we um, study the scriptures, as we study this letter um, by Paul, God, thank you that you've given us these things, um, that we're not walking in darkness, but you've, you've um, given us some understanding, God. And so we entrust this time to you. We ask your Holy Spirit to do the work of illumination alongside of the scriptures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, so let's look at verse 15 together. If you have a Bible, look at verse 15. It'll be on the screen as well. Um, here's how Paul starts uh, this hymn. He says, he, talking about Jesus, uh, he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Okay, so here's what's really interesting about the language. So he's gonna set up Jesus and say, okay, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, the important thing to remember is Christianity is not uh, starting out as like this... Uh, uh, with no type of heritage. So there's a deep type of heritage that is rooted in the Jewish faith, that's rooted in the Old Testament scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures. And so what's really fascinating about this particular kind of ancient hymn is that the Israelites, so let's think back to Mount Sinai. So if you're, if you, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, so, so Jesus comes, not Jesus, God, well, kind of. All right, so God comes to... Um, God comes to Moses and he says, I want you to bring my people out of Egypt. I want you to bring them. This is the Exodus story. I want you to bring them out of Egypt. I've heard them. I want to rescue them. I want to take them. And so he, he, he does that. He, he brings them out. God rescues the, the Israelites. Um, and he brings them to the wilderness and he, he, he brings them to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the Israelites receive the, the law the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and, and maybe you're familiar with that, right? So you know the Ten Commandments, these, these like really kind of base level commandments um, that you read. And so a lot of these, you're like, yes, I agree, you shouldn't murder, right? You shouldn't covet, like all, you kind of, you're like, okay, I should honor my parents, that's a good thing. You, you kind of read all of these. Well, one of the commandments in the Ten Commandments that he, God gave to the Israelites, he says, you should not make a graven image. So make no image of me. So you are not allowed to create an image of me. Now we can read that and it's like, that's kind of a weird thing. Look, that's kind of a, a weird thought. Why, why shouldn't the Israelites make an image of God? Well, he, here's what I think, here's what I think is happening, right? I think that when the created, so created people, when the created people go about trying to um, make an image of the creator, what happens from there to here is that we always skew him. We always, well, two, this is two things that we tend to do, right? Uh, I think on the, if we if think on the end of the spectrum, here's what we tend to do. On one end of the spectrum, when we try and image God or create God in an image uh, that, that we can understand, a lot of times we make God less holy. So he's just like one of the boys. He get like, man, Life in the wilderness is hard. I know you need a release. Like, sin is cool. Like, I'm, I understand that. Like, I get it. Right? We, we, we tend to make um, God kind of more docile, a little more manageable. We, we would make God into uh, someone who doesn't take himself so serious, who is... Um, uh, uh, his standards can be pretty loose, right? Like this is, this is what, what he is. Like this is what we have a tendency. We, we make, we would make, and we do make God less holy. I've been reading, um, in my personal reading, I'm in First Kings. And so if you know anything about the, um, the, the, the king kind of dynasty in Israel, so you have King David, who was kind of the pinnacle, although he was really messed up. Uh, and then you have Solomon, right, um, who was, was, was pretty good, but then he, he didn't do well there at the end. And then from there, the, the kingdom splits because of Solomon's rebellion. The kingdom splits. 
uh, into two separate kingdoms. And then if you follow the dynasty, the kings of all of the Israelites, were, it was like a mess. It was like there were four that were kind of great. Or, you know, there were four that, were, that did pretty well out of, out of 16, 17 or whatever. Like it's, it was just chaos. And I remember reading even this past week um, two things. I was like, man, these, these like kings can't quite like get it lined up. And then the second thing that, that I just remember thinking I was reading was like, man, God takes sin very serious. Like he was doling out punishments that when we read the Old Testament is alarming. Like it's difficult. Where he's like, your whole family is going to be destroyed. Like you're going to come into the city and your son's going to die immediately because of your rebellion. Like, I just remember thinking that and thinking like, man, sin, God takes sin very seriously. Like, he is a holy God. He takes it serious. So on one end of the spectrum, we make him less holy. On the other end of the spectrum, as we try and image God, uh, we make him, and both of these are stated in the negative, right? So less holy here. And on the other end of the spectrum, we make him less gracious, less kind less compassionate. We make him up here as if he's out of reach, as if he hasn't made himself available to us. Like this is the problem. We're on this end of the spectrum or this end of the spectrum. J.I. Packer, he's a British theologian. Uh, he says this, he's talking about the second commandment, which was not to make any image. The second commandment means that any statement that begins, I like to think of God as should never be trusted. I like to think of God as, he says, that's just a statement that should never be trusted. So look what Paul does here. So what are we to do, right? What are we to do? Look what Paul does. Paul essentially says, if you want to know what God looks like, you don't have to guess. He says, if you, if you want to know what God looks like, then look at Jesus, if you want to, I mean, this, this is what he's saying in the text. Like, um, if you want to know what God values, what does Jesus value? If you want to know what pleases God, look at what pleases Jesus. If you want to know what angers God, what does anger Jesus? You see Jesus in the scriptures. We see Jesus. He's turning over tables in the temple because the marginalized are being taken advantage of. We see Jesus talking at a woman at the well who'd been disregarded because of her multiple relationships. We see Jesus restore Peter after Peter had turned his back on Jesus in his darkest days. We see Jesus eat with Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector stealing from his own people and working for the occupying forces. If you want to know what God looks like, then you look at Jesus. Paul is saying that, that Jesus is the, the mediator, and this is what we see all throughout this hymn, that Jesus is the mediator between the visible and the invisible, between the earth and the heavens. And so he says, Jesus, see the centrality of Jesus, that he is the image, this thing you're forbidden from thinking about. He is the image. They didn't have a, think about that. Like they didn't have a, they didn't, before Jesus came on the scene, they didn't understand God as having a, a, a focal point or as a person. It says, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. See how he lives. This is what is happening. 
Okay, look back at verse 15. He's going to continue to build on this centrality of Jesus. So he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then he says that Jesus is the firstborn um, over all creation. He's the firstborn over all creation. Now, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that God was at one point not created and now he is created? Does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? So he was one that was born first and then everything else came from that. No, it's not what Paul is saying here. It's not what the church has um, believed. What you, you have to hear this um, through their ears. So when they hear firstborn, uh, they're not thinking about first created. They're thinking about status. So the firstborn in their, in their culture, it meant two things. The firstborn meant that you had all the responsibility. So if you were the eldest, you had all the responsibility and everything was due you. So you had, rightful, um, you had the rightful place to the inheritance, right? And all the babies in the room, we all say that's terrible. But this is what firstborn meant. This is what, if you were firstborn uh, in your kind of family, this is traditionally what you got. And so Paul, when he says that, uh, when, when Paul says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Paul is saying that Jesus has all the responsibility and Jesus is the rightful heir to the inheritance of God. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 89, 27 says, I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. Calvin, um, John Calvin, he pointed to Jesus as the older brother as a basis for our hope and assurance. Listen to what he says. He says, there is a second Adam who comes to remedy all. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are born of the, uh, we are bone of the bones of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have him in, and we have in him a new and second creation. And there is no doubt at all that we are joined by God by means of him, seeing, uh, seeing he is our true brother, because we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, for just as he is very God, so on the other hand, he is akin to us because he came down in order that we might be glorified by means of him. For that reason also, he is called our brother. Paul in Galatians 4, uh, verses 4 and 5, says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters. Now, here, here's the good news, right? So Jesus, as the eldest son, as the eldest brother, bears all the responsibility. Now, the good news of that is Jesus was what? Perfection. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He was able to carry the, the full burden of the responsibility as the eldest brother on our behalf wasn't he? That's what he was. And then the second part of that is, is if all the inheritance is due to Jesus, here's what Jesus has done, right? Because Jesus is not like, you know, your older brother, right, who would keep everything. It says, no, no. Jesus, as the eldest brother, the one with rightful inheritance, has now opened that inheritance to us and now has given us the ability, this is what um, Paul says here, has given us the ability to receive adoption as sons and daughters. 
He's given us access to the inheritance, the inheritance of the kingdom of God that Jesus leads the way. Okay, kick down. Look, look at verse 16 and 17. So he says he's the, the um, image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation, 16 and 17. 17. He says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Okay, so here's where we have this visible, invisible, uh, pointing to that again, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Okay, so now Paul is kicking down to um, essentially looking at creation power now. And he's doing the same thing that, the, uh, that John does in John chapter 1. So if you um, look in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, the very beginning of it, what you're going to see uh, is that John is going to say, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. And, and then he's going he's gonna to kick on down, and he's going to say, uh, creation was made through this Word. Uh, this Word, this, uh, the Greek is logos, is simply, he's talking about the Word as um, is Jesus, and so what John does in John chapter one of his gospel account is the same thing that Paul is doing in this hymn in Colossians chapter one, is he is um, recognizing that Jesus is in Genesis one. That he is in, um, that he's in the very beginning of the story. That, that all things are through him, for him, and by him that when you open your Bible in the Old Testament to Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there was darkness, and it was, all full, uh, it was formless and void, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. He's saying, even right then, Jesus was there. He was there. He was there. One commentator says this about Jesus. He says, he keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. David Garland says it this way, Christ is more than a force that preserves the orderly arrangement of the cosmos. He is its rationale, its rhyme, and its reason. This is who uh, Jesus is, that all things are created through him. Okay, kick down to verse 18. Verse 18. So he's going to go from creation, from invisible God to visible, from eldest brother, creation, and now he's going to kick to the church in verse 18. Verse 18, he says this, and him goes on. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Okay, we've talked pretty extensively about the church. We've talked pretty extensively about Jesus as the head of the church. Uh, and, and so I don't want to get into that too much, but I do... Uh, I do want to just state kind of two things as I was thinking about this text of Jesus as the head of the church. Um, here is, and this isn't new to our day. Um, I do think it gets highlighted a good bit in our day. It, it hist historically has happened throughout the history of the church, but it's definitely something that we see in, in our kind of current moment in time, our kind of cultural moment, is you will find, even in Boston, that's not surprising to some of you, but there are a lot of churches in Boston who are talking about compassion, they're talking about generosity, they're talking about justice, um, they're talking about love, they're talking about equality, uh, they're talking about a lot of these really important social things 
but they're not talking about Jesus. They're just not. Like, again, really important things, but what Paul is gonna say and what we see happen in the early church is that Jesus is the head of the church. Like he is the, the focal point of the church. So you can't have a church if you don't have Jesus. And, and kind of what's, uh, you know, what's a bit crazy about that is like the reason that we're talking about some of these certain things is because Jesus was addressing these certain things. Now, the other end of the spectrum, right? So that that's can be, it can be a bit tricky, right? Because it's like, hey, um, we, you know, you got to talk about Jesus. Can't talk about all these other kind of social issues without talking about Jesus. But then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you can have people in, in the church that are just like, you know what, man, we're just like, we're just the Jesus church. So we're just going to talk about the gospel. Hallelujah. Right? Like we're just going to talk about, we're just going to talk about the gospel. We're just going to talk about Jesus. And so we, we kind of, we see some societal issues are going on around us, but you know what, man, we're just Jesus people. And they weaponize, they weaponize Jesus as the head as an excuse not to deal with the cultural issues of their day. So like, hey, we, we see systematic racism and, and brokenness, but we're just a Jesus people, so we can't talk about that. Well, Jesus talked about that. Jesus addressed that. So, so it's like, okay, let's think about it. If we wanna talk about politics, then let's talk about politics, but let's talk about politics and Jesus. Like if we wanna talk about sexuality, and we should, let's talk about sexuality and Jesus. If we wanna talk about race, and we should, let's talk about race and Jesus. If we wanna talk about equality, and we should, let's talk about equality and Jesus. Like if we wanna talk about uh, immigration and refugees, which we should, let's talk about immigration and refugees and Jesus. He's the head. He'll actually push us further into cultural issues and give us a, uh, a type of sustainability that without Jesus, we wouldn't have. This is what we see with Dr. King. This is what we see. This is what we see in so many um, individuals who came forward to press against the cultural issues of their day. What was driving them? It was Jesus. We don't not address these things because we're a Jesus church. We address these things because we are a Jesus church. So he says Jesus is the head. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And so many times what we're after, well, what, uh, churches that, that remove Jesus, in a lot of ways they're after a kingdom without a king. And we say kingdom, yes, but we also say king. And so he says, Jesus um, is the head of the church. He is the one who's in front of us. Okay, look, at verse, look back at verse 18. So he says, he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. And then look what he says here about Jesus. It's getting even deeper. He says, he's the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have the first place in um, everything. Okay, so this is talking, this is essentially talking about what Jesus has secured for us. 
So when it says that he is the firstborn from the dead, this is what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is now, by his life, death, and resurrection, we talked about it Easter, he has now um, brought into uh, an effect that did not exist before. And so what Jesus did is that Jesus was the first individual, this is what Paul's talking about, to conquer death. Jesus made it possible for those who are following Jesus, for people sitting in the room, for you and I, to be a people not afraid and not enslaved. The language that the Bible uses is enslaved. To be a people not afraid or not enslaved to death, both physical death and spiritual death. That we know that although death hurts, physical death hurts, and it does. It does. It hurt. Like it's, it wasn't, the, the reason death is so painful is because it was never supposed to be that way. And so we mourn and we weep, but we don't mourn and weep as a people without hope. Because we have hope. We don't have to be spiritually dead and separated from God because Jesus has conquered death and given us away. And so Paul says he's the firstborn from among the dead, that you can live as a people not enslaved to death. Jesus said in John 14, uh, verse 19, this is what Jesus said about himself. He said, in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you'll see me. And then this is what he says here. He says, because I live, you will live too. Because I'm alive, you're alive too. I have opened this up. I have made this possible for you. Looking on down, look at verse 19 and 20. Final thought here, and then we'll be done. So Paul's going to end here um, talking, really talking about the incarnation of Christ. If you don't know what that is, we'll talk about it in a second. But he's going to talk about the incarnation of Christ and the, the work that Jesus did. So look at 19 and 20 here. He says this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and by making peace through his blood, uh, shed on the cross. So here's what Paul does. Paul is separating Jesus from all other divine beings. So angels, whatever else is there, Paul is saying that all the fullness of God was in Jesus, that he occupies a place in the heavenly realm that no one else occupies. The fullness of God is inside of him. He's talking about this idea of the incarnation. So the incarnation of Jesus is just this. It's really complex. It's not very simple. But it's basically this idea that, that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. That, that he's, he's fully fully God, so he's still God in the beginning in Genesis 1. But he's also fully humanity. So he gets our struggles. He gets our difficulties. The Scripture says he understands the temptations that we experience. This is the power of his incarnation, of his humanity. Shirley Guthrie says this about the incarnation. It's such strong. She writes this. She says, He is not like a king who preserves his majesty and honor only by shutting himself up in the splendor of his palace, safely isolated from the misery of the poor peasants and the threat of his enemies outside the fortress. Okay, so that's one imagery. Look what she says. His majesty is the majesty of a love so great that he leaves the palace and his royal trappings to live among his subjects as one of them 
sharing their condition, even at the risk of vulnerability to the attack of his enemies. Made himself vulnerable. If we want to find this king, so she's highlighting the majesty of Jesus here. If we want to find this king, we will find him among the weak and the lowly. His genuine majesty, both revealed and hidden in his choosing to share their vulnerability, suffering, and guilt and powerlessness that he took on as a as the perfect son of God, living in perfect obedience to the Father, that that was the, the beauty of his majesty, that he would leave the heavenly realm and that he would come to earth, that he would walk the streets that we walk. He would experience the hunger that we experience. He would experience the sadness that we experience. He would get tired like we get tired, that he would limit himself in this way, his willingness to become like we have become. Look how Paul ends. He says that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and that through him, through Jesus, he's going to reconcile everything to himself. So think about him. Verse 15 is what? Cre- he's going to move from creation to reconciliation, creation to redemption. And so he's going to say, Jesus was there in the creative story, and Jesus is redeeming and reconciling all things. So he says, two things, two, two thoughts about this idea um, of Jesus as reconciling all things. In verse 20, he says, through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. How did he make peace? Look at the imagery that Paul appeals to. By making peace through what? Through his blood shed on the cross. Violent imagery of bringing reconciliation to a rebellious people. Two things here that I think um, we would miss if we didn't grasp this. Jesus is, I need to say it, be very clear about this. Jesus is the exclusive means by which we get to the Father. Jesus himself said it. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. If anyone wants to be in relationship with the Father, it happens through me. He says it. We see it over and over again in the scriptures, right? What a horrific, what a horrific God we would have if there were another means for humanity to experience salvation other than the cross. God would be a horrific God, a terrible father, if there were another means to experience salvation. And so Jesus, this is what the early church believed, this is what Paul's saying in this hymn, he is the exclusive means by which we experience reconciliation with the Father. And that's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. He's a good, a good Savior and a good Lord to follow. He's done the work. It's not about what we do. He's done the work. The second thing that we see here um, in the scripture is it says that he's reconciling everything, not just you and I, not just humanity, everything is being reconciled through Jesus. Now, what does that look like? Um, I'm not sure what it looks like. Here's what scripture says, Romans chapter eight, about this idea that he's reconciling all things. Romans chapter eight, this is what Paul writes in verse 19 through 22. He says, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself would also be set free from the bondage to decay. The creation is in bondage, is decaying into what? The glorious freedom of God's children. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So God's doing something through Jesus, reconciling all things. Revelation 21. Listen to the imagery that Paul or that John gives us. Um, I have no idea what the, what the end game looks like. It's going to be like, don't know what that's going to be, but listen to what John says in the, in the best way that he knows how to explain it. John, uh, Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to pray. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. New heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he says, what? What's the imagery he gives us? He says, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now think about that. So I get to do, um, I've, done a lot, I get to, I've done a lot of weddings, right? And so I get to take this position um, here and I get to see just kind of everything like play out as it's going on. It's a great place to be as long as you don't jack it up. All right, so... It's a great place to be. And, and do you know what, like, every wedding I've ever been to, do, do you know what my first thought is? The, the bride, like, comes through, opens the door, or whatever, is coming around the thing. Do you, like, you know what my first thought is? Stunning. Stunning. Like, I've never seen a bride, like, come into the bridal and go, ooh. Ooh. No. It's stunning, beautiful, pure. It's like, it takes your breath away. Moment. And so John, with the best language that he knows how to describe, is saying this is the work that Jesus has done. He is restoring all things, both things in heaven and things on earth. And he continues on, verse 3. He says, then I heard a loud voice. Where did it come from? From the throne. He said, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He's living with them. He's present with them. Like, is this not giving you like Garden of Eden vibes? He says he lives with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. Verse four, incredibly powerful. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Brokenness will be no more. Cancer will be no more. Sexual abuse will be no more. Drunkenness will be no more. Confusion will be no more. No more. No more. No more. Because the previous things have passed away. Verse 5. Then the one seated on the throne. This is God's statement through Jesus. 
Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new.